engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. It's Eric Erickson. Welcome. It is Atlanta's Evening News starting now at 4.07 p.m. The phone number, same as it was before we left, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. We've got a lot to talk about. There is some breaking news happening now. Uh, The Dow Jones Industrial Average has gone down 660 points, closing down 2.8%, dropping significantly because of Apple. That is, Apple blaming a lot of their problems on the president's trade war with China, the impact his tariffs are having on China. We will get into that. And also, uh, the New York Times reporting and sources close to the White House are confirming the president is considering former Senator Jim Webb of Virginia, a Democrat, to be Secretary of Defense. Jim Webb had been the Secretary of the Navy during Reagan's administration and quit. Uh, Ronald Reagan reportedly say, and actually publicly did say, that the Navy would not miss him. Uh, He then got elected to the Senate and was very miserable in the Senate, then ran for the presidency as a Democrat. The Democrats rejected him, and now the president considering him. Uh, I don't know that this is the guy that the president wants. Uh, We will get into that. And Nancy Pelosi back as Speaker of the House. Before we get into any of that, we need to go back to the issue uh, where we left at the end of December, right before Christmas, the government shutdown that actually happened, and why we're still in the government shutdown. First of all, I think it's worth noting in the government shutdown that no one is dying. Uh, The nation continues to survive during the government shutdown. Individuals are fine. You can actually still go visit parks. There was a story in the New York Times, I believe, or the Washington Post that uh, people are having to, to basically poop on the side of the road in Yellowstone and elsewhere because the bathrooms are closed, but people can go visit the parks. Uh, the world has not come to an end with the government shutdown, and I think that's a good thing. I think gridlock is good. I think it's a feature, not a bug. Um, But the reason that the Democrats don't want to go along with the president on building the wall or offer any resources on the wall has to do with breaking the president, and I think that's very, very important for us to understand. It's something that I talked to a prominent Democrat about over the Christmas vacation, and I just want to relay to you what this Democrat said to me about this. The Democrats don't support the wall. They believe the polling is on their side. Uh, They very, very, very vehemently believe that the nation doesn't want the wall. They don't think we need to fund the wall. And if you'll recall, they offered the president the wall back in February, and the president uh, accepted their offer and then rejected it. So the Democrats have no intention of giving it to him now, and they have no intention of giving it to him for a couple of reasons. One, they think they need to show the president's base that the president is not the man they thought he was. And that's a very key point here that I think is going to backfire on the Democrats. They want to show that they can bend the president to their will. They can make the president cave. And if they make the president cave, they think they are giving a middle finger to Rush Limbaugh and Laura Ingram and conservative voters and Sean Hannity and Fox News watchers. They really want to do this because they think it is a psychological impact on Trump voters to see the president cave. I actually think that'll make Trump voters more emboldened, more willing to go to the polls in 2020, and more willing to rally around the president. But the Democrats are convinced they've got to break the president on this. The other issue with the Democrats and why they want to do this is they think that the Republicans in the House and the Senate are with them on making the president cave. They really do believe that the Republican leadership in the House and the Senate don't want the wall either. And because the Republicans in the House and the Senate don't want the wall, they think they have more ammunition to be able to to stick to their guns and not cave with the president. Uh, And I think, actually, that we're going to find the Democrats really do not back down on this. Now, uh, there is some question, and the Democrat I talked to said this is one of the big concerns for the Democrats. There is some question as to whether a talking point being raised by Republicans in the media might actually get them to cave. And that is the compromise talking point. You know, Democrats for a long time have been telling the president he's got to compromise. He's got to compromise. Well, here comes the president saying, look. We'll take $2.5 billion. I wanted five. We'll take $2.5 billion. And by the way, you were, in fact, willing to give me uh, the, the partial $5 billion for the wall back in February. So let's go down to $2.5 billion. You're already starting to see people like Savannah Guthrie and Dana, um, Dana Bash on CNN and others 
asking the Democrats, uh, aren't you refusing to compromise? They are deeply worried about that talking point uh, because that is a talking point they think resonates after years of saying it's Republicans who need to compromise. If the Republicans can kind of get this to sink in that it's the Democrats who are refusing to compromise, well, then they may be able to move forward. But you got these two competing visions here. Let me play the soundbite by Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina, about the president and the wall. The president is going to challenge the Democrats to compromise. And if they continue to say no, they're going to pay a price with the American people. Most Americans want to do two things. They want to secure our border, and they want to be reasonable to the people like the DACA population. If he gives in now, that's the end of 2019 in terms of him being an effective president. That's probably the end of his presidency. Yes. Now, here's Nancy Pelosi's former chief of staff on the wall issue. First of all, you have to believe her when she says that. That is not going to happen. Democrats are not going to pass a bill that's going to fund the wall. That's number one. Number two, you watch as Republicans, you know, pass the bill in the Senate that does not fund the wall. There are votes in the House that do the same thing. Look, and, and Democrats have never been shy about uh, taking steps to protect the border. If you want to have a serious discussion about border protection, about dealing with, you know, uh, undocumented immigration, about dealing with uh, bipartisan immigration reform, then let's have that. The wall has become a symbol for the president and for this White House. It is a symbol for his reelection campaign, and that has to, you know, be put on the table. That has to come to an end. See, notice that that this is a symbol for the president's reelection that it won't do any good. So the Democrats, they want to hurt the president's reelection. They want to hurt him with his base. This is why the Democrats will not fund the wall. They think they need to show President Trump's voters that he will sell them out. Now, one compromise that I wouldn't wouldn't be surprised happens. The Democrats fund Planned Parenthood and give the president his wall and see if they can hurt him with evangelicals. One way or the other, though, I think we're ultimately going to have to see a compromise here. But right now, the Democrats have it in their head that if they compromise at all with the president on this issue, they'll be hurting themselves with their base and they'll be helping the president with his base. And they want to hurt the president with his base. And the best way to do that is to not give him the wall and then let the president face the backlash from his own side. You know, it's just it's a fascinating, fascinating dynamic here in the House because we do now have the Democrats in charge. And I don't know that the Democrats really or that the president rather really understands how to combat the Democrats on these issues right now. Nancy Pelosi taking back uh, the speakership. She is the first speaker of the House since Sam Rayburn to return to the speaker's chair. Paul Ryan out altogether. Uh, didn't just set, set back and win re-election to Congress and lose the vote. He decided to retire altogether. Uh, I'm going to have to write up something on, you know, I really do like Paul Ryan. We disagreed on a lot of things, but he's a very nice guy. Very, very funny. Uh, last year, I guess it was last Thanksgiving or so, I was... Um, I was home and got a, just a random call from Paul Ryan and <laughs> his nephews kept coming in. Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, when are we going? When are we going? Uh, he was taking them out hunting. Uh, all these kids, he and his, his, I guess, a brother-in-law or some member of his family were taking out the kids to go hunting and they kept interrupting the call. He's a, he's a, he's a good guy. And I think he gets a bad rap. Um, he was put in a very unfortunate position, and history will show it was a position he tremendously did not want to be in. Paul Ryan never wanted to be Speaker of the House. He was ultimately the compromised guy and wound up doing it, though hating every moment of it. Never really liked to be Speaker of the House. Uh, an unfortunate position. I actually pinned an op-ed in, in USA Today when he was up for that vote saying I didn't think it was a good idea to put him in as Speaker, that he had sold out conservatives. And I, I don't think he ever did conservatives a ton of favors. But at the same time, I also think that I, I'm finding more and more in politics that I can be friends with and relate to people I disagree with in politics uh, because we're also burnt out of it. We can find common ground to talk about other things. Uh, we don't have to talk about politics. Too many people are, are switching out religion and politics and treating politics as a religion. In fact, um, I would be remiss if I didn't know Brie Payton died. She was a writer at The Federalist. She went to work one day last week and went home, went to bed, and the next morning woke up and had H1N1 flu and meningitis 
and was dead by that evening. Now, many of you probably don't know Bree Payton. She was a uh, young conservative writer, 26 years old. Uh, really, really was a good writer. I did not know her well. Uh, she was friends with a lot of friends of mine. Uh, what was appalling, though, was a bunch of progressives uh, laughed at her death, uh, ridiculed her. She had written a tweet when she was 19 years old uh, poking fun at anti-vaccine folks. And they treated this tweet as if it was real and not poking fun at people and ridiculed and turned her death into the butt of jokes. And it was all because of her opposition to Obamacare. And it's just it's amazing how people in politics these days are still treating the other side as the infidel when they're just political opponents. And we're going to see a lot of this now with the Democrats back in charge of the House. There is a movement in the House and the Senate to amp up anti-religious, particularly anti-Christian bigotry. We're seeing this in the Senate uh, with Kamala Harris, Dianne Feinstein and others now uh, aggressively saying they are going to oppose anyone who is a member of various Catholic organizations because they think those people, in Dianne Feinstein's words, put their dogma ahead of our democracy, which is astonishing for a senator to say. There's even a provision in the U.S. Constitution that says there can be no religious test, but it's not really enforceable in court. If these people vote against these nominees, you can't go to court and say, well, the reason they did it was because of anti-Catholic bigotry. And yet that's actually why they're voting against these people. And we're about to see the Democrats really convinced, as Nancy Pelosi said today, the, the nation wants to move beyond Donald Trump. They want to go in a different direction. The Democrats are going to give it to them. And what they're going to do is they're going to amp up the social justice warrior nonsense and I think overplay their hand, potentially handing the presidency back to the president in 2020. Of course, we've got two years to get there. It's 24 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. So I got to play you this clip from Doris Kearns Goodwin. It, it really sets the stage for uh, what we were seeing and hearing earlier today on Capitol Hill uh, with Nancy Pelosi returning to the speaker's chair. Just, just listen to this. Yeah, which makes it even a more warm occasion. You know, it struck me in Representative Jeffrey's nomination of Speaker Pelosi when he talked about what a joy it was for him to nominate her. We've had so little joy in politics in these last months. I mean, there seems to me so little joy in President Trump as a person, you know, except when he's fighting against something. So to see families together at this moment, to see the joy of new people thinking that maybe things will be different, you know, that maybe there's something will change and this fever will break. Um, we just have to celebrate that moment, and it's a great thing. You're right. Normally, they can't be there. So, you know, let us just take this moment and feel good about it and know that maybe things will get a tough again tomorrow. But I just have a little bit better feeling about things right now as of this moment. So call me that. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, she <laughs> has a little bit better feeling, has a little bit better feeling that the that everything will be fine now that Nancy Pelosi is in charge. I don't know that much is going to change. Uh, what the Democrats are, though, going to do is they're going to begin to amp up impeachment hearings. They're desperately waiting for Bob Mueller to save them. Uh, in fact, you've got one member of Congress. Oh, what was his name? Uh, give me one second, and I can tell you a member of Congress has now filed paperwork. Brad Sherman, that's right, uh, from Northridge, California. He's the, one of the very, very hyper-liberals who has been, uh, he wanted to impeach George W. Bush as well. Uh, Sherman wanted to impeach George W. Bush. He now wants to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, he's going to drop articles of impeachment. He's not waiting for Mueller. The leadership, though, for the Democrats is going to wait for Mueller, and this puts the in a very, very interesting position uh, where they are, they're going to have to placate their base while at the same time not overreaching to make independent voters, particularly the suburban voters who wound up voting Democrats, mad at them. Um, Democratic Representative uh, Kildee, he has been traveling around the country and uh, working very, very hard to rally the base for the Democrats. He helped fundraise for a lot of the incoming Democrats from Republican districts. Listen to this quote. It's very, very telling. Uh, this was him on Fox News earlier today. I don't know where they get their reporting. I was in 25 districts of these swing districts of the 40 or so that we won. The issue of Donald Trump, the issue of investigations almost never came up. That was not the agenda we ran on at all. 
I know where in my own campaign, I ran on the issues that people talk about when they're sitting around their own kitchen table. Now, that's not to say that we don't need to do our job and provide the necessary oversight for the administration. But the core economic message was about you know, getting America working again. And obviously, we've made progress in that regard, making sure we're dealing with health care costs, pension security. Those are the things that we heard about back home. Those are the things we campaigned on. And frankly, that's why the American people rewarded us with this majority. So, in other words, no, they're not going to fall for the the fever swamp ideals um, of doing this. I, see, I don't know that the Democrats can thread this needle because their base is highly, highly motivated. Their base is desperate desperate for impeachment. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome back. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Them's the phone numbers. I hope you guys had a great uh, Christmas and a fantastic new year. I hope it will be a fantastic new year. I want to spend a few moments on the Mitt Romney situation. Wow. Talk about a blast from the past. Everybody coming back in here. Uh, Mitt Romney now. You've also got Elizabeth Warren. It's like the week of the Massachusetts people. Uh, I I do believe I'm going to refer to Elizabeth Warren as Hillary Jr. Uh, She is just as unlikable as Hillary Clinton. In fact, the people in... Uh, Massachusetts themselves don't care for Elizabeth Warren. So you got her situation and you have Mitt Romney's situation. And I just don't know that it's going to go very well for either of them if they go down the paths they appear to be going. Uh, We've got to play you this clip from CNN about Elizabeth Warren. Uh, You know, I think it's a great question. It's potentially because she's uh, very progressive, maybe a little too progressive even for Massachusetts. But it should be said that Sherrod Brown in Ohio has a long progressive record, and he actually outperformed how House Democrats did. It could also be the case that maybe there's just something about her personally that voters don't like. I should point out, of course, this is just one way to look at electability, right? We're going to have a case. Elizabeth Warren, the rest of the Democrats are going to perform in many debates, and we'll see how she does in that particular case. But I will say that when you look at how Massachusetts voters view Elizabeth Warren, whether it be in her reelection margin or where they place her in early primary polls where she's running third or fourth, despite the fact that Massachusetts Democrats know her very, very well, I think if you were to project that out and say, hey, these Massachusetts voters who know her best don't like her in comparison as much as the other Democrats, it's a warning sign to me. Yes, yes, it should be. Uh, The last Democrat to run for election and not win his home state is a guy named Al Gore. And look how that turned out. Uh, Elizabeth Warren in the primaries. Now, in the general election, she would win Massachusetts against Donald Trump. But in the primaries, there's no guarantee. She's not hugely popular. Mitt Romney, the former governor of Massachusetts, is now a senator from Utah. He's also making waves out there with his op-ed in the Washington Post about Donald Trump. Now, let me just give you my take on this. Mitt Romney's sin, the outrage over what Mitt Romney said, Mitt Romney's sin was that he said publicly what everyone says privately. I mean, when you look at the pushback from Trump supporters on Mitt Romney, none of them are disputing what he said. What Mitt Romney said is that President Trump has bad character, and nobody disagrees with that. Even the president's core supporters agree. In fact, the president's core supporters have decided character doesn't matter. And Mitt Romney kind of reminds these people that uh, they all campaign saying character counts until Donald Trump. But uh, one of the reasons that uh, Republican voters decided that character no longer counts is because they saw guys like Mitt Romney running for president not fighting aggressively. He pulled his punches. I mean, even the president has come out and said that had Mitt Romney been as harsh with Barack Obama as he was with Donald Trump, he probably would have beaten Barack Obama. I don't think that's true, but it is a statement that the Trump supporters are making. The big, it took about a day. It took probably 16 to 18 hours for Trump supporters to come up with a shared critique of Mitt Romney. What they came up with, I think, has some validity to it. 
Mitt Romney was willing to campaign with the president in 2016 in Utah. Mitt Romney invited President Trump out on the campaign trail and the president endorsed him on the campaign trail. When the president was considering who to be Secretary of State, Mitt Romney played perfectly nice with the president while he was considering it and didn't say anything. It was only afterwards that he was critical. They made amends again. The president campaigned with him, and now the, Romney's critical again. Frankly, I, I think this is Mitt Romney showing he will fit in perfectly in the U.S. Senate because this is what U.S. Senators do. They campaign, say nice things, and then they stab you in the back. Mitt Romney will fit in right at home here. But uh, again... This doesn't distract from Mitt Romney's point. Uh, the president's team would like it to distract from Romney's point. But even Rand Paul, who's taking issue with Mitt Romney, isn't really attacking Mitt Romney's point about the president's character. And what did Romney do? All he did was say he's going to be his own man in the Senate. He's not going to be a loyalist to the president. That means he will probably be like Ben Sass, who votes with the president 85% of the time. Mitt Romney's not going to oppose Trump-appointed judges. He wouldn't oppose the tax plan. He wouldn't oppose building the wall. I mean, by and large, the Mitt Romney is going to be a reliable vote for the president. What gets the president's supporters riled up is the thing that just aggravates me. That they, just, they don't like anyone to point out that they're backing a guy who's a moral cretin. He, he's amoral. He's not immoral. He, he, he doesn't have morals. And that's just the truth. And we might as well all accept it. It comes with the package. You vote for Donald Trump, you're voting for a guy who doesn't have morals. Now, you you know what's so crazy here? Let me play this, this quote from Mitt Romney. He was on with Jake Tapper yesterday on CNN. He was endorsing me. I wasn't endorsing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I haven't decided who I'm going to endorse in 2020. I'm going to wait and see what the alternatives are. So you're not on board? Because the, the, the senior senator from Utah, uh, Mike Lee, said he uh, is likely going to endorse uh, the president. I think it's early to make that decision, and I want to see what the alternatives are. But I've pointed out there are places where we agree and a whole series of policy fronts. Uh, but there are places that I think uh, the president can, uh, if you will, elevate his game and, and do a better job to help bring us together as a nation. Is there any chance that you might emerge as an alternative to President Trump and run against him for president in the primaries in 2020? No, you may have heard I ran before. Yeah. <laughs> I've had that experience. And by the way, I, I acknowledge the president uh, was successful, and I was not. Uh, he did something I couldn't do. He won. And, uh, and I, I recognize that and appreciate that. Uh, but, uh, but no, I'm not running again. And we'll see whether someone else does in a Republican primary or not. But uh, time will tell. Yeah, here's the big headline of the day. I'm more likely to vote for the president in 2020 than Mitt Romney. That's kind of crazy. Um, the president does have his work cut out for him in his reelection. But you know why I think he'll get guys like me and he'll wind up getting people like Mitt Romney is because when you look at the alternatives out there on the Democratic side right now, the Democrats are going far left crazy. And I may not care for the president personally, but I like a lot of the policies he's giving us. Uh, Stuff like Syria and our prompt withdrawal from Syria, things like that, make me squeamish in supporting him. I'm not opposed to getting out of Syria, by the way. It's just the way he did it. I I don't think that was very leader-like. But I'll probably wind up voting for the guy in 2020. Uh, I can see myself supporting the president in 2020 because I think that at this point, um, a third party is not going to be an option. There's going to be no primary challenge to the president that's successful. And it's going to be him versus a Kamala Harris or someone. I I don't think that Elizabeth Warren is going to be the Democratic nominee. I think it's going to be someone who's even further left than Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Someone who willingly is targeting Christians in the Senate for persecution. And I'm totally going to back Donald Trump in 2020 against uh, one of these radical leftist Democrats. And Mitt Romney and people will, too. Uh, I I just I I think it's worth pointing out that everybody needs to calm down about Mitt Romney. He's now one of 100 senators by screaming about him and elevating him. You're you're promoting him to a level where he no longer is. And there's no point in doing that. Uh, Mitt Romney is now one of 100 senators. He is not a more significant voice than any of the other 100. So I think we can probably just say, let's move on to a new topic. It's 54 after the hour. The phone number, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Believe it or not, this is the end of the first hour. We've still got a second hour to go, and at 6 o'clock, Mark Aram 
is up. Uh, complete schedule change. We have not, however, changed the name of the station yet. <laughs> Old joke. Those of you who know, you know, the pig farmer knows. Nathan Deal only has about two weeks left to be governor of the state of Georgia. He was honored today at the state capitol. They unveiled his official portrait. His wife is in the portrait with him. Uh, there are symbols in the portrait. Uh, you can see a crane out the window to symbolize the growth in Georgia. Uh, and looking towards the, the new Supreme Court building, there's a model car to symbolize the growth of the auto industry in the state. And a bookend of holding back some books uh, that looks like, a, I believe, a, a movie camera. To highlight the film industry, there's an apple on the desk to highlight his education reforms and scales of justice to highlight his criminal justice reforms. He's got a big legacy. He and I did not always agree. I, I really think he should have signed uh, the religious liberty legislation. It's going to be a festering fight that we're going to deal with this coming legislative session. But the the governor of the state of Georgia is a was a profoundly good governor. He wasn't my first choice. I supported Karen Handel. And he wound up uh, really selling himself on me. I, I, I think one of the most underappreciated stories of Nathan Deal's tenure as governor of Georgia is he allied himself with black mothers in the city of Atlanta for charter school reform. Uh, if you will remember in his very first term, the, the black leaders in the city of Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, in the um, Democratic caucus, in the House of Representatives and the Senate, they were vehemently opposed to an expansion of charter schools in the state. And Governor Deal worked very hard to woo um, black pastors and mothers, and he won. And he won not just with Republicans in the state of Georgia. That, I think, is important to note. Uh, he did not win with just uh, Republicans. He won with uh, a lot of black women in the state of Georgia who wanted to improve the lives and the educations of their children. And that will be his legacy. Uh, there are plenty of things I disagree with. I often think that it's not just a critique of Governor Deal, but of Republicans in Georgia in general. They are a pro-chamber of commerce that does not necessarily translate into pro-small business. They want to lure big businesses into the state of Georgia using your tax dollars and do so at the expense of established businesses in Georgia. Uh, but he was very, very careful in the businesses he attracted to Georgia. And the state has been economically prosperous because of largely what he has done. There are things I wish he would have done different, but I got to commend Governor Deal. He's been a good governor, highly respected governor, and he will be retiring. Uh, Brian Kemp will be sworn in January 14th. I believe they're doing it at the uh, pavilion at the basketball arena at the Georgia Tech, which is kind of hilarious. Brian Kemp is a huge University of Georgia fan. And he'll be having his inauguration at Georgia Tech. I, I expect a, a comment or two about the dogs versus Tech in his remarks. Uh, I will be there that day. And then uh, that'll be the 14th on the 16th. He'll be conducting his first radio interview uh, live with me at 4 p.m. here on WSB. Now, when we come back, the Democrats in Georgia have decided they are going to continue the campaign against Brian Kemp. Normally in Georgia politics, once the election is over, both sides stand down. Democrats in Georgia have decided they're not going to, and the Republicans in Georgia, I think, are going to have to figure out how to respond, how to fundraise, and, and how to push back on the Democrats in Georgia. I'll tell you what the Democrats are doing and why you may be targeted by them when we come back. Eric Erickson here. This is actually the second hour. If you were here just two weeks ago, it would have been the first hour, but now we are moving. Uh, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mark Aram comes up at uh, the top of the hour, at top of the next hour. So the phone number here, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. I want to start with local news. 
January 14th, Brian Kemp will become the governor of Georgia, right now governor-elect, as Nathan Deal winds down his administration. The Democrats in Georgia and the Republicans in the past, when the Democrats uh, controlled the governor's mansion, always showed each other a modicum of grace by winding down campaign season, once the campaign was actually over, and giving the governor a, a bit of a start to try to get his campaign and get his administration underway. Democrats in Georgia have decided that they're not going to do that. Uh, if you are an independent voter or your Google profile, your advertising profile online suggests that you're an independent voter or you're a Democratic voter or you're a Republican woman for that matter, they're going to target you. You're going to start seeing ads. and In fact, there are still running ads on Facebook, on Google, uh, across the board, attack ads on Brian Kemp. Uh, they're attacking him for business loans. They're attacking him, claiming he's got unethical conduct. Uh, they're trying to build a case in the media that Brian Kemp is a corrupt uh, Trump person. Uh, essentially, the Democrats in Georgia know that Brian Kemp has four years to establish himself as his own man, and they don't want him to be able to do that. They believe that Donald Trump is an inherent weakness for Brian Kemp, and they're doing their best to continue to tie him to Donald Trump. They want to show Brian Kemp as corrupt. They want to show him as out of touch. They want to show him as an elitist. They want to show him as crooked. They want to show him as involved in bad business deals. All of these things in order to mount a case against him. Now, they've got some problems because several Democratic members of the legislature are showing that they do want to work with Brian Kemp's administration, particularly on teacher pay raises. He's going to be able to get some bipartisan wins. Uh, but this all goes for four years. There are rumblings in the Democratic Party here in Georgia that Stacey Abrams may decline to run against David Perdue. In fact, I'm hearing Michelle Nunn may try to run against David Perdue again in 2020, and that Stacey Abrams is going to use the Democratic Party apparatus to lay the groundwork to run against Brian Kemp in 2020, essentially on an I told you so campaign. They don't want to give him a break. Now, the, the Kemp campaign is going to still have these four years to be able to show that he is his own man. They're still going to be able to have these four years to show that he doesn't stand in President Trump's shadow. But more importantly, Brian Kemp is going to have four years to show Georgia that he has the competence and skill to continue to move the state forward. There are economic warning signs on the horizon. The Dow Jones fell 660 points today, or 2% over Apple's earnings concerns. One of the Trump administration's senior officials came out today and said there are going to be dozens of other American corporations saying the same thing that Apple has said, that their earnings are on decline and they're revising earnings because of the president's trade war with China, that the White House now acknowledging his tariffs are having an impact on American companies. There's going to be an economic slowdown up Apparently, there are lots and lots of warning signs, at least, uh, that we are headed into an economic slowdown. And if Brian Kemp, over the next four years, can chart a course for Georgia that keeps Georgia out of the economic decline that uh, more and more people are beginning to believe is going to happen, well, he'll have a great record to campaign on when it comes to 2022. Uh, I said 2020, that's Michelle Nunn against David Perdue, 2022 when he would be up. And I don't think we're going to have a four-year economic turndown anyway. And, you know, if the president doesn't win re-election in 2020 and there's a Democrat, that improves the Republicans' odds across the nation for picking up seats, including holding on to governor's mansions in Georgia. The Democrats, however, are convinced that they can convince Republican women and independent voters and moderate Democrats that Brian Kemp has no business being governor. They are going to fund a campaign online and offline on TV, on radio and mail. Uh, and at least if they have the money, they're going to try to continue to badger Brian Kemp, continue to assassinate his character and continue to try to portray him as a mini Trump. Because they don't have an agenda to run on. They, they don't have a winning side. They don't have a winning team. They don't have a majority. They don't have statewide wins in Georgia. The best they can do is a four-year character assassination of Brian Kemp and hope that people will cry uncle and say, enough, we'll give it to you, Democrats, just go away. That's going to be their strategy. I don't think it's going to work for him. I don't think in four years of beating up Brian Kemp and he has a successful record as governor to show that the Democrats are going to be able to do what they want to do. But 
that's not going to stop them from wasting their money and trying. I will say, though, Republicans in Georgia do need a response to this. They do need to get some wins for their base. One of the things Republicans can do as a win for their base, religious liberty. One of the other things Republicans can do as a win for their base is helping rural Georgia and farmers in the state and not kowtowing to liberal interests in the city of Atlanta. If they can shore up their base and do these things, well, he's going to have an economic record to show. He'll also have a socially conservative record to show. So when you have Republican senators like Renee Underman saying, basically, screw you, social conservatives, we're going to work on getting the suburbs back by pushing a liberal agenda. Well, I don't know that that's the wisest course for Republicans in the state. They're just going to be bowing to the Democrats and the Democrats sustained campaign attack. It's time to fight back fight back as conservatives. Now, Republicans in Georgia are going to have a reduced majority in the House and the Senate. Uh, they will not be able to do a lot of constitutional amendments that they were able to do with supermajorities in the past. That's not going to stop them from significant reform, though, in the state. I still think that uh, Brian Kemp has signaled he's willing to sign RIFRA. Uh, if it is a, a copy of the federal version, he's willing to do it. And I think that conservatives in the legislature need to realize that they can't play games with this. They need to actually get it done and push it through quickly. The speaker is going to be an impediment to them. Um, but, you know, there are growing conservative organizations in the state of Georgia that I think would be in a position to help them. Um, you got the, the Family Policy Alliance and others here in Georgia now that are recruiting and running good conservatives. At some point, I think we're going to have to have a conversation among conservatives in the state of Georgia of whether or not we can rally around Republicans to replace some Republican members of the legislature who aren't helping us. And frankly, we've got the Renee Unterman situation in the, the Senate. Renee Unterman favors uh, Medicare for all or expanding Medicare, expanding Obamacare in the state of Georgia. She wants to be the chair of the Senate uh, committee that is in charge of health care public policy. So you've got a Republican who has already told social conservatives that she and expects to give them nothing. And now she is getting Democratic support to be the chair of this health care committee because she supports expanding Obamacare in the state. Is that really how Republicans in the legislature want to re reward the Republicans who got Brian Kemp elected and helped preserve the Republican majority in the state and also showed up uh, at, the, at the runoff and got Brad Raffensperger in the Secretary of State's office and Chuck Eaton on the Public Service Commission? Do they really want to put someone in charge of a health care committee whose uh, singular issue is expanding Obamacare and who repeatedly blocked uh, expansion of medical marijuana in the state and is now telling social conservatives to, to go away and want to ignore them? I think that's a bad strategic policy for Republicans of the state of Georgia. They're going to have to deal with it over these coming weeks. They're having these conversations behind the scenes now as they try to set a legislative agenda with the incoming Kemp administration. Now, as for the Kemp administration, they're coming in wanting to make it all about economics. They understand what's happening in the markets right now. They understand the economic situation. What uh, Brian Kemp would like to do is be able to find a funding mechanism whereby he can give teachers a pay raise. It was his signature issue on the campaign trail. And Stacey Abrams repeatedly mocked him on the campaign trail and said there was no way he was going to be able to pull this off. Brian Kemp wants to pull this off. Brian Kemp wants to give teachers a pay raise in the state of Georgia. He remembers Roy Barnes. He remembers the problems he had in his reelection uh, with Sonny Purdue. It wasn't just the flag. There were uh, huge teacher issues with Roy Barnes. Uh, Mark Taylor was scuttled because teachers really didn't support him against Sonny Purdue. Nathan did deal, got a lot of support from teachers. Brian Kemp wants that teacher support of the state of Georgia. And the best way to get teacher support is in the pocketbook by trying to find a way to give them a pay raise. And frankly, there are a lot of Democrats in the state of Georgia that are going to side with him. So the Democratic Party in Georgia can do these sustained attacks on Brian Kemp, but he's going to get a huge bipartisan win if he can figure out where to find the money to give teachers this pay raise. What I think we're going to see Democrats do in the state if he gives this pay raise is they're going to try to make it a bigger pay raise and essentially try to dollar for dollar outmatch Brian Kemp to the point where they're going to have to wind up raising taxes if they actually want to fund uh, the teachers with what they're offering. I, I think we're going to find a Brian Kemp compromise here. And it's going to prove a lot of Democrats wrong that he isn't willing to work across the aisle. They're convinced he isn't willing to work across the aisle. 
You give teachers a pay raise like he wants, it's going to be a huge win for Brian Kemp and really, really, really set the stage for his reelection early in his administration. It's 26 after the hour. The full number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is now Congresswoman Representative Ocasio-Cortez, and she is living rent-free in a lot of conservatives' heads. Y'all, she is a young member of Congress. She has no clout, and she has no power. And conservatives are obsessed with everything she says. And I have to tell you, I am more and more convinced that people on the right are giving her power she does not have, are amplifying the views that she has, uh, and doing so in a way that helps her, doesn't hurt her, I don't think. Uh, Particularly in in such a hyper-partisan age, the conservative animosity, it's very much like when the president attacks someone, Democrats suddenly rush. I mean, look at Mitt Romney. The president goes after Mitt Romney, and Democrats rush to love Mitt Romney. This is a man they accused of giving people cancer in 2012. And now suddenly he's a Democratic hero, not because he said what he said about the president. In fact, he was getting attacked by Democrats for that. Yeah, this this is kind of the untold story here of, of the Romney op-ed is Democrats attacked him because they said he's still going to vote for the president. He's still going to be a Republican. He's still going to vote for the president's agenda. Uh, therefore, we shouldn't pay attention to anything he says. I mean, Democrats savaged Mitt Romney for his op-ed. And then the president and the president's supporters came out and attacked Mitt Romney and suddenly, oh, Mitt Romney hero. We got to love Mitt Romney. This is what's happening with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Nationally, few people knew who she was until Republicans started attacking her constantly, and they blew up her profile even before the media paid attention. Now, of course, the media's paid attention, and she's become a media darling. I have to tell you, though, if you follow her on social media, she's extremely relatable. And this is something I think Republicans need to be concerned with. She is very relatable in a way that rebuffs Republican attacks. Now, she can't become president, although she hinted at wanting to be president. She can't. But we got to be careful about this and not let these people live rent-free in our heads. It is 39 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. I I realize some of you were probably shocked that this is the second hour and Mark Aram comes in at six o'clock. I got to tell you, just as an aside, I I think I can do this here as a just a small personal note. Uh, When I started at WSB, I, I was told at the time I was the first person to... Uh, get a weeknight job on WSB without any prior radio experience. They thought I had it, uh, and only told them after I signed the contract. It was a misunderstanding. <laughs> they thought I had a radio show down in Macon. Um, I was just filling in for a guy who got arrested in a crack house uh, and uh, wound up getting hired here as Herman was Kane was running for president. And within a year, wound up moving into the uh, five to seven slot. It was first six to eight and then moved five to seven and have been there in that slot uh, from five to seven ever since. And the downside of it is it means that five days a week, I can most assuredly not have dinner with my family. And oftentimes they will wait for me and I find that it takes me another hour to scramble around and try to figure out what we're going to do for supper uh, and go out way too often in the last year really um, as Christie's medicine she gets worn out in the evenings and so I've been going out and finding things to get and sometimes it's it's two or three different places I, I feel like I'm one of those uh, people who goes out for Uber Eats and picks up a bunch of meals and brings them back and it's been really frustrating. We've worked very hard to get out of the habit. But now getting off at 6 o'clock, I will be able to have dinner with my family at a reasonable hour. Uh, and we'll be doing so tonight. And I cannot tell you 
how much that delights me. So I am very sorry. I have heard a lot of complaints from people who that their commute time either starts at 530 or 6. Uh, you'll have Mark Aram, though. So calm down. Uh, it is it'd be happy for me that I will be able to have dinner with my family. One thing I want to tell you, as well as a programming note, uh, and I haven't even told the pig farmer that this is going to be happening, uh, but next Wednesday, as from here on out, uh, programmatically, I think, I am going to start doing a rundown of the horse race for the Democrats and the Republicans. Now, why do I say the Republicans? There is some growing talk among Republican state parties that they are going to cancel the primaries in 2020. The South Carolina Republican Party is suggesting that they're going to cancel the Republican primary. And now the New Hampshire Republican Party is suggesting it may cancel the Republican primary. The reason being is because they're not quite sure that the president would not have a run for his money. And the reason they believe that is because even at the end when it was was very clear that he was going to be the nominee, he was still barely able to break the 45% mark. Uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney had been, for the last 100 years, the lowest vote-getter in a Republican primary. And Donald Trump broke that record. He got fewer votes in Republican primaries as the nominee than anyone, including McCain and Romney. And the Republican Party thinks that there are a couple of people who want to challenge him. Bob Corker has surfaced as a name who may challenge him. I know there's an effort to try to get Ben Sass to challenge him. And, of course, there's the whole Mitt Romney thing. But Romney himself says that's not going to happen. Uh, so the Republicans are trying to shut this down and force these people into a third party if they want to challenge him. And, and honestly, I, I don't blame them. This is Donald Trump's party. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to a primary. At one time I was. But I do think that this is a fight not yet over within the Republican Party. It's a fight worth having. I think it'll be the president's fight to win. I think he will win it. I think the president probably will win re-election because the Democrats are going so far left. But I don't think they should preclude necessarily having this intra-party squabbling and finally resolve this fight as to whose party it is and let the president come out on top. And then those people can decide that if they want a new party, go have a new party. It's probably going to happen. But in any event, that's why I'm covering the Republicans as well, uh, although there's not a lot of news on that front right now. But on Wednesdays going forward this year, my plan is to kind of give you a play-by-play, -play, particularly as this Democratic primary shapes up. Elizabeth Warren coming out and Dianne Feinstein of California coming out saying, ah, I got an idea on who should be it. So Elizabeth Warren is the first Democrat out for 2020, just an abysmal launch. This whole live streaming, drinking a beer thing. Do, I mean, I, I can live stream drinking a beer for you guys if it'll make you feel better. Um, by the way, that reminds me. I had a, a new friend and listener. He and his brother invited me to Top Golf the other day. And it was fantastic. The Friday after Christmas, I went up to Alpharetta to the Top Golf up there. And we, sat, we hung out all afternoon um, drinking beer and hitting golf balls. It was fantastic. Uh, I, at some point, I'm going to have to organize a listener event uh, where we go to Top Golf and y'all can watch me embarrass myself. I'm terrible. I got to get lessons. I love to play, but I'm terrible. Um, nonetheless, Elizabeth Warren uh, live streaming her beer drinking. Her husband didn't want to go along with her. Uh, it was just, it was weird. It was awkward. She really is Hillary Jr. I mean, she was, she's making quiet car jokes. For those of you who don't know, and it's probably 99.9% .9 of you don't, uh, on the Acela train that is the train that runs the northeastern corridor between dc and boston there is a quiet car and you're not supposed to talk on it and she's on twitter and making jokes about they say women are like to women candidates are like the best when they're in the quiet car whatever this is actually a play to the media that claims to care about flyover country she doesn't actually care about flyover country she's not making jokes to to make herself likable to flyover voters it's uh sucking up to the press and of course naturally members of the media are coming out oh they don't like elizabeth warren because she's a woman uh, no, we. I would gladly have Nikki Haley for president. All these people saying this, that she's a woman, um, they will not vote for Nikki Haley. Were she the Republican nominee, they would not vote for Nikki Haley. Look at the attacks on Marsha Blackburn. Uh, Taylor Swift came out and, and opposed Marsha Blackburn for the women. She did it. Um, it. It's such a load of crap. 
um, that that the you got to support the women. It's it, you got to support liberal women who believe in killing kids. That's the Democratic line there. Well, Diane Feinstein, um, Martin O'Malley, who ran for governor in 2016 very unsuccessfully, has come out and said he's not going to run. Beto O'Rourke should run. Diane Feinstein came out this afternoon and said, "Wait a second, not him, Joe Biden." And I do think Joe Biden is the one who can give Donald Trump a run for his money, but I don't know that Joe Biden can get through the current Democratic Party. Why? Because he's a white man. And the Democrats increasingly are signaling that no white man need apply, and increasingly no white woman, including Elizabeth Warren, need apply for their nomination. Uh, For people who say judge people by their character and accomplishments, the Democrats are going full-on identity politics. It is 54 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. I'll be back with Scott Slade tomorrow morning at 8.15 as well. And then tomorrow evening, back again, 4 o'clock, 4 to 6 with Mark Aram from 6 to 8. Brand new times for both of us. Uh, Sean Hannity, you can hear his second and third hour of his show if you want at 8 p.m., 8 to 10 p.m. in the run-up, I guess, to his... um, show or I guess now he's on at nine. I, I can't remember on they I, I, I don't know. Even when I was with Fox I never really watched the show's past special report other than Martha McCallum's show. Um nonetheless, I digress. Uh the national parks are stayed open during the government shutdown. And I gotta tell you this. So the Atlantic has a piece out by a business professor at the Wharton School of Business, which is the most prestigious business school in the country. It is where Donald Trump himself graduated. And the guy actually argues that the Senate of the United States, or the the Congress of the United States, by legislation, can alter the composition of the Senate. He actually argues that. He says the Constitution is more malleable than we believe, and the, and the Congress can reapportion the Senate, which is it's, it's not true. There is no rational argument for this, and he's being pilloried by law professors left, right, and center for his statement, and yet he's doubling down on it. Uh, the, the 17th Amendment of the Constitution says that each state shall have two senators, and each senator shall get one vote. Uh, that's very, very straightforward, and he seems to think that they could uh, re-apportion the Senate, that malapportionment of the Senate. There, there's no malapportionment in the Senate. Each state gets two votes, and it gets two senators. And I think that what is missing here is the idea that somehow uh, the left has decided that the states are subdivisions of the federal government, that the states are essentially to Washington as counties are to states. You know who created the federal government? I realize the Constitution says we the people, but it was the states. And in fact, one of the arguments in the in the Constitutional Convention was whether or not that should be made more clear. I guess they should have because the left is tending to ignore it. It's why the Tenth Amendment exists to make it very clear that the powers not given to Washington are reserved for the states or the people. Uh, and we're going to hear so much in these next few years, even after Trump is gone, whether it's in two years or whether it's in six years, we're going to hear more and more complaining by the left about the Senate because when they cannot win, they declare it illegitimate. Uh, the only legitimate things in America apparently are when the left wins, and that's not happening, thank God.